I would take a job again, but only if it was fully remote. So I could continue to travel and live as a, as a digital nomad. So at first I almost responded and just said, no, you know, thanks for reaching out, but I'm not interested. But then I think, Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. First things first, let's check in with Cody. What's going on, man? What is going on, Justin? Well, I had a pretty eventful weekend, had a little sprinkle of normalcy. I actually ended up going to the Red Sox game on Saturday. The capacity was like 20 25%, but it was still a ton of fun. I am double vaxxed. We talked about that before, so I'm staying safe, but starting to go back and do some normal things. I'm kind of excited to see how the rest of 2021 folds out as people start to get vaccinated, as people are out and about more restrictions get lifted. And I actually just got my wisdom teeth out yesterday as we were recording this. So struggling to talk a bit, but I'm still powering through. Of course, I got to get through this for you listeners, but it's actually not as bad as I expected. They weren't too impacted, so it's not, I don't think the recovery is going to be horrible, but I'm just hanging in there, man. How about you? Yeah, like yourself, got the vaccination. So, um, you know, this will be my first time coming up that I'll be able to actually be around my parents in the last year and not have to be concerned about it, especially my dad who had cancer last year. So, this weekend, I decided to actually drive home. It's 11 hours on the way. I made a pit stop in Dallas to see one of my best friends. Shout out to TJ in Dallas. We had a good time and then did the rest of the 11 hours. So eight hours from Dallas to my hometown. Really excited to get to see the parents. But another big thing I'm doing while I'm in Mississippi is actually going commercial with the pizza oven. So I've got two events, one Wednesday night, one Friday night. As we record this, I already have like 25 pre-orders. And I actually, the reason I probably don't have more it's because I told them I needed to stop just in case I can't keep up. So we'll sell more if I if I can keep up. But if not, we're going to sell at least 25 pizzas. So I'm excited about that. Well, Justin, you gave me the sneak peek. What do you got in the menu? And what's the name of the place? <laughs> uh, yeah, so, well, I'm doing this at the uh, Elks Lodge that my dad's a member of. But I'm kind of calling it JT Southern Slice. I got three pizzas on the menu. I got the ranch hand, which is like sausage bacon with a ranch base and some caramelized onions. I've got... Old Red, which is a more traditional like marinara, you know, red sauce base with the sausage, pepperoni, peppers and onions. And then I have the Sexy Mother Clucker, which is a uh, <laughs> a grilled barbecued chicken with a white, like a garlic white sauce base and some red onions. So that's the three. There's a few people who are like, can I just get cheese? And I'm like, okay, fine. But I'm trying not to do any kind of crazy <laughs> customizations. Enough about our adventures and crazy commercial plans. Let's take a moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote-unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans. These can be 401ks. These can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. 
And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. So today we have Eric from Nomad on Fire. He's got this really cool story where he had a lucrative job in like logistics, supply chain management, but he was working some crazy hours. He had a really rough commute. And so he's like, I got to figure out a way out of this. And so he saved up over $500,000 and just took the leap. He actually did one of these programs that I've been advertised a few times that I think is really interesting where they kind of assign you with a group of people and you travel different countries. So you bounce around South America and some other places. But, you know, he wasn't like fully, fully retired. He was lean retired, as some people say. So he, he was, you know, he didn't have just a giant budget that he could look at while he was spending it. And so he didn't necessarily think that he would just not work ever again. But he definitely wanted to take some time off. He wanted to start thinking more about like, how does he work more remotely? How does he get more of his own schedule back? He started his podcast, started the blog. Eventually, some people reach out to him on LinkedIn. He ends up taking a job offer and it goes back into more of that kind of corporate world. But now he's in a place with a much better work environment. I think he's about 70% remote. And to me, the big thing that jumped out there is, okay, yes, he started a corporate environment. He ended up in a corporate environment so far. But because he had that money saved up, it gave him the leverage to say, you know what? This company is not the one for me. I need to take some time off and figure this out and eventually landed in a perfect company that had a really great culture, uh, gave him a lot better work-life balance. And that's a big part of that freedom that is sometimes overlooked is it's not just an on-off switch. It's not just, hey, I'm working, now I'm not. It's, I'm working in a place that's driving me to the ground. I need to take a step back. And while I'm taking the step back, I'm not freaking out about my bills. I'm not, you know, I'm not all worried about these things. And it'll give me time to find the perfect opportunity to fall into. Yeah, I think that last piece you talked about is just so important. And I think people overlook it. People do think you have to get to the end, then you quit, then you retire, chase your dreams, do your side hustles, whatever. But I mean, you could take a 50, you could take a 75% pay cut if you're being frugal like Eric was, and you want to go even try a career that's completely different. Like, yes, Eric does get back into supply chain management, but I know you asked the question in this episode, Justin, like, did you ever think about going and doing something else completely random? Like, you know, maybe Eric wanted to be a zookeeper, but it only paid 30K versus his 150K job. But since he saved up that huge nest egg, like he has the optionality to go and do that thing. And I also just love how he talked about geo arbitrage and how, you know, if crap hit the fan and he for some reason couldn't take an income, he's kind of been in that situation where he could go move to Thailand and live on 20K a year. He's been there. He's done that. He's actually crunched the numbers and lived life to the fullest. And he was able to cut his expenses super drastically with geo arbitrage. And obviously, we're not saying you have to go live in Thailand, but there are a lot of options out there if you want to move to even a different area of your country where living expenses might be a fraction of what they are now. And if you guys enjoyed this episode as much as we did, you can check out all the awesome show notes, all the links at thefileshow.com slash Eric. That's thefileshow.com slash E-R-I-C. The funniest insight was my number one thing was futuristic or something. And it kind of hit me and I was like, I've always, yeah, I've always like really been just excited and kind of a planner and looking forward to the future. So I think that kind of just really help me in terms of like having that burning desire for achieving financial independence and what my life would look like, where I would travel to the, you know, family and friends I would hang out with. So I think that was probably the biggest takeaway. 
So you take that survey, you get futuristic. What does the future of Eric at that point look like? What was that first job you jumped into that you since jumped out of? Yeah, so I studied uh, supply chain management in school. I worked uh, my entire career in the logistics industry as just like an operations manager, basically a shift supervisor. And yeah, it was just, that's kind of where where I landed. I, I enjoyed it for a little while, but then, you know, came across financial independence in, in 2015 and just really kind of work-life balance was getting worse while I found financial independence. So it was kind of a good intersection, I guess. So I really just kind of ramped up the the savings rate and really trying to pursue financial independence. And then I would say the work situation got worse. And kind of a little bit after that, I found out about you know digital nomad lifestyle and then just really wanted to combine the two of them together. When you first started discovering financial independence, what was it that like really motivated you? Was it just getting out of a job that maybe you had lost your love for? Was it being able to spend more time with family? Is it a combination of things? Was it, you know, just what was it that really got you psyched about financial independence? Yeah, I think it was a combination. Like it definitely part of it was like leaving a somewhat bad situation, just like long hours, working nights, working, you know, weekends and and kind of weird things like not having that work-life balance. So part of it was getting away from something. And then I think what drew me towards it was, yeah, more time with with friends and family. I feel like I've always been just kind of, I don't know, an optimizer, just, you know, want to work on kind of side projects and, you know, enjoy working out and just working on different things that were fun to me. And I, I feel like I didn't have the time really to engage in a lot of those passions or kind of creative outlets. So that was definitely a thing drawing me towards financial independence. So I'm curious, when you do discover FI, because a lot of people have these native talents, they have these tendencies. You're a supply chain management guy, you're working in this corporate role, it's starting to decline a little bit, you're falling out of love with it. What were those things that you started to actually do when you discovered FIRE? Like, were you starting to save more? Were you not investing before? And then maybe you discovered FIRE and realized, holy crap, I got to invest in this thing called the stock market. Did you start side hustles? What was kind of the FIRE path that you took right off the bat? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think the biggest thing for me was just avoiding lifestyle inflation. So really, the, I mean, the timing honestly couldn't have been any better. I think I found out about uh, financial independence at the end of 2015 in early 2016, I received a pretty large salary bump that came with a promotion. So I just hammered the uh, Mr. Money Mustache articles. And, and naturally, I'm a pretty big spender. Like, Had I not found out about financial independence, I can only imagine what my lifestyle creep would have been like. I'm sure I would have bought you know, an apartment right downtown in, in Austin where I moved to that was you know, more than I should have been paying. Uh, you know, I'm sure I would have just kind of bought stupid things that I knew wouldn't bring value to my life, but I would have just been tempted to buy those. So I think the biggest thing was to really just take that money. I was used to living on X amount now that I was making, you know, Y amount, you know, more than that, but just continuing to live at kind of that base level. So I had uh, a roommate, I lived with my brother, which was fun. And, you know, I was able to save money. I had a a car uh, that, it wasn't the best car in the world, but got me from point A to point B, but it was fully paid off. So I kept that. And then I just, I maxed out my 401k for the first time. I maxed out my HSA for the first time. And then anything left over, I put into a wealth front I use. So just like a robo advisor. So just uh, ETFs there at like the max 
risk tolerance. And then if I had anything left over, I would kind of challenge myself and just try to build up like a cash buffer and uh, Marcus or some sort of online savings account. So it's interesting that you're saying you weren't naturally frugal, that you were going to, that was not, you know, natural for you, you were a natural spender. You could have seen yourself going down this totally other path. Once you bought into FI, financial independence, though, what was maybe the toughest thing to give up or what was the thing that you're like, gosh, I really do wish I, I would spend more money on that, but I'm just not going to let myself. I definitely try to be pretty health conscious. So I feel like if it's something related to fitness or my health, I don't try to cut costs around that activity. Usually I'm pretty busy. I do use this is this is not very this is not very fire. I hate to admit this here, but uh I do like sometimes get like prepackaged meals from the store, but they're like whole 30 or paleo like super healthy and they're definitely like way more expensive than it would be if you cooked that stuff yourself, but just to avoid the time that it takes, you know, to cook that and then clean up and, you know, meal prep and everything related to that. I just personally felt like it was a better decision just to kind of save a little bit of time, spend a little bit more money, but it's something related to my health, you know, which impacts every other aspect of my life. So I felt like it was worth it to spend a little bit more there. So you find fire, you're saving, sounds like you're starting to invest in a lot more things than you were doing before. Maybe you were just barely getting the 401k match. Now you're maxing it out. Now you're putting money into Wealthfront, doing all these awesome things. At what point, how many years later did you start to feel comfortable? And obviously you're understanding the tenets of fire, the power that the money is buying you. When did you feel comfortable from leaving that day job? I know you didn't hit full fire. I think you use lean fire as the term for when you actually quit that job, but you don't have to give us exact numbers, but maybe multiples of salary, or you can give exact numbers if you want. And also the mindset piece as well. Yeah, it was over 500K, less less than a million is kind of what I had in terms of net worth at that point in time. It really was just a, a lifestyle decision. I just became just even more burnt out in the role that I was in. And I was just, I had a super long commute. So I think the biggest factors were like working nights, working weekends and and having a really long commute. It just, I really felt like, you know, I was in my mid to late twenties at the time and I, I was making good money. Right. And I was saving a lot and I was setting myself up for future success which, which is amazing. But, you know, at some, at some point I felt like I was missing out on some really good years of my life and I wanted to enjoy them a little bit more and, and live them uh, a little bit more fully. So I was just listening to a lot of like financial independence and uh, digital nomad related podcasts and kind of just doing a lot of research. And then I don't know, it just kind of, I, I thought about it. It wasn't an overnight decision. Like I definitely considered it for, for a year you know, people outside of, uh, you tell someone you left your job and in the fire community and they're like, Hey, hell yeah, man. Like congratulations. But in normal, uh, I guess corporate America, you don't just give up a, a high paying job just because, you know, you felt like traveling or something. So it definitely took me a while to, to wrap my, my brain around it. You know, I told my parents I was going to go to South America and, and start traveling. And at first they were a, a little concerned with, where I was going to travel and, and leaving my job. But yeah, it, it all worked out from from there. And the, the rest is history, I guess. It's almost like you read my mind there because the, actually the question I was going to ask next was, what did those people around you start to say? Did people think you were crazy? Did you have trouble maintaining friends who you know aren't going down this path? Because a lot of times it feels like people 
they kind of lose that sense of uh, understanding with each other, like because they're living such different lives when they don't have that nine to five anymore. Did you did you struggle to maintain relationships, and did people think you were insane for doing what you did? Actually, kind of an interesting piece when I told people at work, it was kind of interesting. The people that I thought were super kind of career like gung ho, super motivated, like came up to me in private, and they're like, "That's so cool, man!" Like I wish. I've thought about doing something like that, which really surprised me because it's the same people that I thought wanted to be CEO or something one day. So that was kind of just a funny anecdote. No, in terms of relationships, like I don't, I mean, really my friends in Austin, because of the work-life balance, I didn't get to see them as as much as I wanted to. I mean, they were supportive. They kind of knew my situation and and thought that it was a good fit. And then traveling, like I started traveling with a a group program. So kind of had a a great opportunity to kind of meet some new friends that were, you know, interested in similar things in terms of, of traveling and maybe living a slightly different or alternative lifestyle. So before we get into your travels, which I definitely want to dig into, you've been to a bunch of cool places. We've actually been to a bunch of the cool same places. Could you give us an idea of your spending picture? Like before you moved and went full digital nomad, what did your spending look like? Because let's just use 500K as a proxy. And I imagine it was between that and a million. But if you're spending 100K a year, in five years, you're through that money. If you're spending 25K a year, that money will last you 20 years, assuming you're not investing at all, which I know you were. But what kind of spending were you looking at in terms of like housing, transportation, fund costs, all that stuff? Yeah, I think I had. So I had like the nest egg and then I had, I think, right around 35 or 36K in, in cash that I'd kind of budgeted for a year. The initial part of my travels was definitely more. Like I said, I did it like I did a four month remote year program and I knew that that was going to be more expensive just because of the base costs of the program. And then just being with a group of, of people, right? Sometimes you can have that social pressure to do side trips or, you know, go to the bar and buy drinks or spend money on stuff that, you know, you maybe wouldn't necessarily on your own. And I also, you know, this is my first few months of kind of trying out the retired lifestyle. So I also wanted to live it up. So I budgeted like right around 4,000 a month for those first four months, which I came in pretty much right on target. You know, some months it was 3,600, some months it was 4,200, but basically right in line with where I thought I would be. And then future travels, I had budgeted, I think it was 2,000 a month. And when I was in Southeast Asia, and I actually came in under for the few months that I was there, Came in like right at 1800 for, I think, January, February, and in March of last year. And the cool thing about that is like I had that budget, but I wasn't tracking it super closely. Like I feel like, I guess, financial freedom to me is being able to spend what, whatever I want, like within a reasonable amount of spending, but I don't want to track every like five or $10 expense because that takes away, in my mind, that takes away kind of from the freedom aspect of it. I don't want to feel constrained in that regard. The cool thing about Southeast Asia with, you know, geographic arbitrage is I wasn't really tracking too closely what I was spending. You know, if I wanted to go out to eat, I went out to eat. If I wanted to go on a side trip to, you know, a neighboring country, I bought the plane tickets and bought the stuff for the side trip. And that's just 1800 is kind of where it, it shook out, which is pretty amazing. I'm interested in this, uh, the group travel that you mentioned, because I've seen these advertised before. A lot of times they do look fairly expensive, but they seem interesting. Uh, you know, especially someone who is quitting their job, you're traveling around the world, you would like to have a friend group. And that's obviously very 
hard to, you know, to manufacture when you're on the move and you're going to these different countries. So what was your review of this, uh, the kind of traveling group? Yeah, I traveled with Remote Year. I actually have a Remote Year uh, review on on my site. Overall, super positive impression of of the program. Like I thought it was, it only launched in 2015 or 2016, I thought, but I thought it was very well professionally done, kind of productized at the point that I did it in, in 2019 in terms of the travel and like logistics aspect. The big thing that you're paying for, you know, definitely is is the community to kind of have that built in just group of people that you're with. And you're spending a lot of time with those people, right? So you might be living with them, you're going to the same co-working space every day, and then, you know, obviously doing stuff on the weekends or going out to dinner with people. So I feel like you're able to kind of make friendships really quickly, just based on the sheer amount of time that that you're spending with people. I would say the only the only big downside I, I had is is maybe some of that social aspect of it, right? There's there's pros and cons to to everything, I think. Sometimes I did feel kind of that pressure to maybe spend a little bit more money or, you know, to go out and drink or party, uh, if that was kind of the group, you know, vibe of what everyone uh felt like doing. When I traveled, I still kind of traveled with remote year, but I wasn't like on a program when I was in Southeast Asia. And that was a much better blend just for my personal taste in terms of being productive on the blog and the podcast, being healthy, working out, eating healthy pretty consistently, and also being social. I, I felt like it was a much better blend and not skewed towards the uh, the fun too heavily. <laughs> oh, you can always have fun. It's always good to go out to the bars, <laughs> especially in Southeast Asia, where you could probably go out and get drinks for $2 for the night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, not breaking the bank. One thing you just mentioned there, though, and I'm curious kind of where this falls in the timeline, is a blog, podcast, maybe any other side hustles you have started and since stopped. I'm not exactly sure. When did side hustles come into the equation? Was that before you quit the corporate job, right after you're like, man, I'm so bored? Or was it several months after? I'd love to kind of hear when that fell into the Eric journey. Yeah, I think I had launched like Nomad on Fire, the blog, maybe June of 2019. So right before I left my job in July of, of 2019. And yeah, the goal at, at that point in time was that I was going to work on that full time. And it was great to have a creative outlet, something that I was passionate about and something I could you know, learn new skills and make progress. Like I literally had zero experience <laughs> blogging before. So you know, learning how to set up WordPress and learning about SEO the podcast came a little bit later. Cody, I think we talked about this before. Like I just personally enjoyed the podcast more. I felt like blogging, I was sitting there with my head down, you know, trying to come up with the best article ever, spending like three <laughs> or four hours. And then I didn't have, you know, a huge audience or anything. So it'd get like, you know, 10 views in a, in a month or something. So I was like, man, this kind of feels like a waste of time. Where the podcast is personally just more enjoyable to me. I, I like talking, I think more than then writing, I get to have fun conversations with, you know, interesting people. And it's still, you know, valuable, great content for the the listeners. And I'm not sure with the uh, with the blog or the podcast, if and when they became profitable. But did you, as you left your job, did you have this kind of nagging feeling of, I really need to be making some money? This is this is a little weird to have no income coming in. Yeah, de- yeah, definitely. I mean, that definitely was a, a key piece of it. It definitely kind of wore on me. Not right, not right away, but as time went on, that definitely kind of wore on me. I mean, I, I since have, have started working again from there and I'm doing like the blog and the podcast on the side. But yeah, after like a, 
it wasn't a full year, but close to the year mark that did start kind of bugging me a little bit. But at the same time, like I did leave my job before I hit my kind of target, you know, fire number. So just knowing that, like I, I had a good experience, kind of a good taste of it, but was, was fine returning to work and knew that I wanted to get my net worth, you know, to, to X amount. And I was fine going back. So definitely want to just ask a few questions, clarifying questions about that, because I guess it's not too, too often that we hear someone who's hit any type of fire, go back to a full-time job, maybe some part-time freelancing here and there. I guess I'd like to hear one, the mindset piece of making that decision. And then the other piece, like, how did you go out and search for a job? Were you literally just like firing off applications on Indeed? Was this a job you got from a friend, someone that you knew and you knew that this was going to be an awesome gig? Or did you just go back out of fear that, uh oh, the market's going to crash you and I really need to get an income like Justin was mentioning? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely want to talk about that piece. So really it all kind of fell together and it worked out really well, right? So I was traveling. I didn't really have a set plan. You know, I, I left my job. I had a cash buffer for a year. But I guess in my mind, it was, I was open just to kind of see where where life took me. Like it could have been a year, it could have been five years that I wasn't working and in, in traveling. But yeah, then in, in March of, you know, I was kind of really hitting my stride as, as a digital nomad and, and really enjoying life. Um, but then, yeah, you know, COVID got really bad in, in March. But right around that same time, a company reached out to me actually and, and told me that they were basically trying to build a logistics network, kind of the same industry that I came from. I had great experience from, from my previous position. And at first, I wasn't very interested because it wasn't a fully remote job. Like I was at first, I was like, oh, well, I would take a job again, but only if it was fully remote. So I could continue to travel and live as a, as a digital nomad. So at first, I almost responded and just said, no, you know, thanks for reaching out, but I'm not interested. But then I think part of it was concern with like the market and COVID and a little bit of it at first, I think was fear based. But then as I went through the interview process, I did become, you know, more excited and, and kind of really interested in, in the opportunity. And yeah, ended up, you know, getting an offer, which which I was happy about. So kind of getting rid of, of the money piece. I mean, I was very grateful. Last year was obviously a terrible year for a lot of people. So I was I was grateful to be able to to have another job. And honestly, just the in terms of company culture and like the flexibility, significantly better than what I was doing before. So even before I started my travels, like I kind of had a I had like a, you know, scale of of freedom and you know I was on like the the worst part of freedom on on this end and then going to the digital nomad lifestyle and doing nomad on fire stuff was at the like complete opposite end but I knew there was probably su- a happy medium you know somewhere in the middle so I do you know truly kind of feel like I'm at that happy medium now like it's it's not fully remote but I have some remote flexibility so I might go in for a few hours in the building in the mornings but then I can work from home uh, in the afternoon, which is great. And then, like I said, just in terms of benefits and kind of company culture, it's not bad in terms of of a stress standpoint. So yeah, I mean, I, I really can't complain. Like everything worked out great. And I have the net worth that like I could, I could go live in someplace like Thailand for the rest of my life and, and not have to work, which is an amazing feeling, right? Knowing that I have that as a safety net. So if I ever get burnt out or tired of it, hey, you can 
meet me in uh, in Thailand. We'll we'll grab a beer together. Um, <laughs> but I think in terms of just life aspiration and goals, like you know, eventually I probably want to own a home and have a family. And I knew I just didn't have the net worth to sustain that with what I had. So I was fine going back to work to to try to build up to that level. So obviously, you know, going back to the logistics world worked out for you. you found a company with good culture, and you're happy with where you are. But when you started deciding like, hey, maybe I'm ready to go back and do some work, did you think about kind of reinventing yourself, like changing what you were marketing yourself as on LinkedIn, doing some retraining? Did you did you think about going to a completely different field outside of logistics? I did. I definitely considered like anything with SEO or with like social media management, anything with the skills I had lear- learned from blogging and, and podcasting. And I think I would have taken a... I definitely would have taken like a cut in salary, right? Because that would have been, you know, maybe my first role in in that field if I had never done it per- professionally, especially if it was a fully remote position. Like that was really the flexibility that I was looking for. Decided not to do that. I think just in terms of, you know, once you have a certain amount of years in a, in a career, right, then you can have higher level positions with, with a higher salary. So I think that's kind of just what drove me back in, in that direction. But I, I definitely did consider switching it up to something different. Well, I just think it's so powerful. I don't want to skim over the fact that you just have all this choosing power now. Now that you have this huge nest egg, like you could have just told that company to screw off and not taken that offer. And, you know, if they start mistreating you in the next couple of months, you don't like the job, you can just leave, which is just such a crazy, powerful thing. And like you said, another thing is you could go move to Thailand if you want and never work again or just work some freelancing jobs or whatever you want to do. One travel piece we haven't talked about, and I know you're huge into this, I'm huge into this, Justin's huge into this, is travel hacking. Tell me about your $5 trip to Machu Picchu. Oh, so that actually is a, uh, that's a guest post by uh, Johnny Sai oh. from the uh, blogging course. Yeah, he did that in uh, guest post on on the site. I think he just ran the analysis of like, we kind of collaborated on it. Like, I think I gave him like, Hey, this is, you know, this is where you want to go. You know, this is where you'd fly into. And he just kind of did the the rundown of like, Hey, if you got all of these different cards, you could do this trip for, you know, five bucks. Well, excuse me for not reading that as thoroughly as I should have. I was definitely skimming it because I was just going through all the articles on your site, but I'd love to hear about your travel hacking experiences. I know you you are big into travel hacking and it's something that you have been able to save a lot of money on your travels and we have a lot of listeners who do that. So, you know, what are some of those initial strategies you've been using or have learned or have been using? Obviously not as of late because of COVID, but, you know, back in your nomad prime. Yeah, I think travel hacking really was kind of my first start to the financial independence and then, you know, digital nomad geographic arbitrage. I think I found out about travel hacking even earlier. So maybe 2014, kind of similar situation to finding out about fire. I think I was just, you know, mindlessly scrolling through Facebook and came across an article about it. And at first I was like, this seems super scammy. Like I'd only had one credit card my entire life. I'm like, this, this cannot be legit. But then as I, you know, just did some research, read more into it, I'm like, oh, this seems, this seems pretty legit, you know? So I, I forget what my first card was. It might've been just a basic hotel card and you know, took my girlfriend to like a getaway weekend and didn't pay anything for the hotels. I'm like, all right, I think I'm on to something here. So then it, I don't know, it just kind of snowballed from there. You know, I'd read like the points guy or different blogs and just kind of see what the what the best deals were. 
I definitely lucked out on some American Airlines cards. I think Barclays, I don't know if they still have it or if they do that deal. They have one that you only had to, you just had to make one purchase on the card and you got like 60,000 American Airlines miles, which is awesome, right? No minimum spending limit, literally just one purchase on the card. My girlfriend at the time was super skeptical about it. And I was like, no, this is legit. Like you should sign up for this card as well. I was able to get her to sign up for that American Airlines card and yeah, make one purchase and have 60,000 miles. So yeah, we traveled together for a little bit. And yeah, our flights to Santiago, Chile from Dallas, Texas were free because we had the American Airlines miles for it. So definitely flights, you know, is able to save a lot of money. Same thing, American Airlines to Thailand didn't pay for that flight, which which was amazing. You know, that would have been, a, I think it was maybe a five or $600 flight. So saved a lot of money on that. Usually I just use the uh, Chase Sapphire Reserve though. That's kind of my main spending card. I, I haven't signed up for a new card in a while, but I definitely, it's it's on the agenda for this year to, to see if there's any good deals out there. So I'm curious since, you know, you, you mentioned like you've already got this base of investments. If you needed to walk away, you could kind of go live in Thailand. But I also understand that feeling of the hunt of trying to, to maximize the travel hacking, trying to get the rewards because it's just like, it feels somewhat better to get something for free, even if you can afford it, you know? So as you start to think about what travel is going to look like, as we start to hopefully see the end of the COVID restrictions, do you think that you'll still really stress trying to do the travel hacking to try to travel in an efficient, cheap way? Or do you think, Hey, I've got my base done now. I can kind of spend what I want to spend. I mean, I think the best thing about the digital nomad lifestyle is you, is you can really mix like I guess different levels of spending and kind of just different lifestyle. Like I think in terms of, you know, you could go somewhere, kind of have a home base as, you know, whatever level you want to spend, right? Most cities in the world, you know, you could have as nice of a house or apartment as you want, just depends on on what you're willing to spend. You know, usually that's somewhere in maybe the the median range. Like I don't want a super basic cheap apartment, but I also don't need the most luxurious high-end apartment. So somewhere as a home base, like on Airbnb, you know, maybe in like the 500 to $1,000 range, depending on the city and depending on how long I'm going to be there. I guess if you need that like luxury feel or if you want to ball out in some places around the world, it's, you know, it's super cheap to have just an amazing experience. Like I, I remember when, when I was in Thailand, like we had a, you know, a home base and an Airbnb, but then there was this like, literally five-star like luxury resort, it probably would have been like six or $700 a night in the US. But because it was in Thailand, it was only like a $200 a night resort. And same thing, I just used Chase Points and booked it. And it was it was incredible. It was in the mountains and had an infinity pool. We had this like, I don't even know what you describe this hotel room. It was basically like a little house. It was like its own house. It, it was honestly like one of the coolest places I've ever been. And it was super affordable because it was right outside of Chiang Mai there in Thailand. So something we haven't touched on, and you've written quite a few articles, like I mentioned, I did skim them. I did miss that Johnny wrote that other one, but <laughs> productivity and habits. And I know you're a guy who loves working out like I do. You are also side hustling while you're doing a full-time job. Like you have a lot on your plate. Could you just talk, I mean, generally about some of the things that you do to be more productive, to keep those solid habits, to you know keep pushing forward, getting 1% better every day? Yeah, I love, love talking about habits. And try to run through a, a normal day. I try to get up early. Just for me personally, I've kind of always been an early riser. 
Like if I have a few extra hours at the end of the day, I'm probably just going to spend it like I'm tired, probably just watching TV. So I try to get up early because I can actually be productive like before I go into work, especially if I get up at like five or 6 a.m., you know, then I have two or three hours to work on blog and podcast stuff. I use Notion. I, I love Notion. That helps me stay organized. I think I have some articles about that, but I, I use it for kind of daily and weekly tracking. So I'll just kind of use it as a to-do list for every single day and I'll track it by the week. But then I also use it for some like journaling and kind of long-term strategizing and, and goal setting. So I have just a lot of notes in Notion and I have a few different templates that I use to kind of maximize for both short-term tasks and then make sure those are feeding into my my long-term goals also, you know, kind of mentioned before, definitely try to eat, eat healthy, like try not to eat too much, try not to have a lot of sugar or carbs or anything like that. I try to work out pretty consistently, like I'll lift, you know, three or four days a week and go for a run or do a different like cardio type of workout another few days a week. I think it's important to, to relax and uh, wind down as well. So, you know, during the week, I'll try to try to be social, like I might hang out with my brother and you know, just chill, watch a movie, play some video games. I, I think it's important to have that balance so you don't burn yourself out if if you're involved in, in too many things. So I think having that social time and just kind of your relaxing time, watching a movie or reading a book is, is important too. I think one thing that's interesting from a productivity standpoint, and obviously different people have their different personalities, but when somebody's thinking about going from a traditional job where they're at the workplace, nine to five, very structured hours, to working remotely, maybe even fully remotely, maybe even adjustable hours. Like, do you have any tips and tricks or things people should watch out for as they make that transition? Yeah, I think it comes back to those those habits and systems. And I think one of the beautiful things about remote work is it allows you to have so much more flexibility in your life, right? Unless you have a meeting or something at that time, or unless there's the company is is tracking, you know, how long you're logged in for or something, you know, you could go for a walk or you could go for a run or get lunch with friends or do something throughout the day that I feel like it doesn't feel like, oh, I just I wake up in the morning, I go to my job and I'm there for long hours and then I go home. It, I feel like you can blend work and life so much better together. And a lot of positions that are remote is a lot more output based right? Sometimes office or different company cultures, it's based on how long you spend there, right? I I feel like we all know the people that they're not doing a lot of work, but they're they're at the office all day long and they're just kind of BSing with people and they're getting promoted, not based on their merit, but just kind of politics, where I feel like remote really turns it into what is your output, right? Like no one's checking to see what you're doing at any second of the day. No one's looking over your shoulder, But if you have a project or you have something due, you can structure your day and however long it takes you to to get that done, it it really just depends on if you get it done or not, which is one thing I love about remote work. So you've mentioned that you're really enjoying the new role that you're in now, and let's assume that your boss isn't listening. But what do the next couple of years look like? Like how long are you planning to stay in a role like this? Or is this something that you're looking for the next five, 10, 20 years? Or is it something that you're going to, you know, quit once COVID is over? I'd love to kind of hear what the next steps are for you. Yeah, yeah. Great question. I mean, I think, you know, I just recently moved back to Austin, got some friends here. My brother lives here. I really enjoy it here. You know, it feels like the most feels like home in the US, I would say. 
So I think I've kind of, you know, maybe evolved my thinking. Like I think in the future, I'd love to have some sort of hybrid model. So maybe have a, a house or some sort of home base in Austin or somewhere nearby, maybe not directly in Austin because the housing prices are, <laughs> are pretty ridiculous, but maybe somewhere like slightly outside, somewhere close. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping in the next, hopefully year or less, I could move into more of like a fully remote kind of program or project manager type of role. I think I enjoy that work more and it would have, you know, fully remote flexibility. And then, yeah, the other portion of the year, I would be able to spend traveling, which which would be ideal, right? I feel like I could get the best of of kind of both lifestyles. You know, I think stationary lifestyle, you know, you have, I think the community is kind of the big one, at least that stands out for me, just having that group of, of family and friends around. And then there's, you know, amazing benefits to travel and geographic arbitrage. So you'd be able to see new places and experience all of those benefits as well and not have to pick or choose between the two of them. So one thing I think is maybe helps your story be a little bit more relatable to people is that you didn't jump really heavy into the entrepreneurial, like trying to start your own business. Cause just, there's a lot of people out there who either don't have the idea, don't feel comfortable with the risk. Like that's just not something they're going to do. I know you had the podcast and the blog, but you know what I mean? You didn't really set your life around this idea of creating your own business is that something you're considering or have thought about or, you know, you've got something you want to try as you get that buffer continuing to grow with the money that you have and feeling comfortable that you could take a risk? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of, I mean, I, I love doing, I love doing the podcast. Like if I could do that and make the same amount of money I was, I was making now doing that, I would, I would definitely do the podcast. Like it's, it's super fun and, and enjoyable. I mean, I'm sure there's other, you know, business ventures or other things I would be interested in in the future. Nothing that really stands out to me right now, I think, you know, over the course of the future and in traveling and stuff, though, I'm sure there'd be other kind of side hustles or other hobbies that I would maybe see if, you know, could become profitable in some way. But I think that's a good thing for like people listening to just remember, like you don't have to create your own business. You don't like, obviously we like to highlight a lot of those stories on the show. They're really cool. There's a lot of things people can learn in their day-to-day life, but not everyone's going to create a business. It's not a requirement to live this kind of lifestyle. And you're just a good example of that. Thanks. Yeah. I think there's, I mean, I definitely like grinded it out for, for a few years, right? Like there's a few years where I, that weren't like, (laughs) the best years of my life in terms of work-life balance. But I think, I guess it seemed easier in my mind to just grind it out and save aggressively for those few years rather than to like take the leap without as much savings and trying to start something myself. So I don't know, it kind of comes down to just your personal preference and, you know, what's what's going on in your life, what you think is, is the best fit for you. Awesome, man. Well, I'm sure we're definitely gonna have some listeners who are inspired by your story. And before we let you go here, one of the last things I want to ask, and I just want to hear a little bit of a background on the podcast, what it's all about, and then where other places where people can contact you. Yeah, thanks. New episode came out today. Uh, Cody was on it. So everyone make sure you check that out. Uh, Nomad on Fire. Yeah, it kind of started, I mentioned it before, you know, really just enjoyed conversations. I wanted to hear interesting travel stories. I wanted to hear about financial independence. I think just in general, there's a lot of overlap between those two communities. Like I think, especially geographic arbitrage, right? Being able to just cut your living expenses in half, like basically overnight. There's a lot of tie-ins. And I think in terms of kind of just life philosophy, right? In general, I think 
if you're hardcore into pursuing uh, financial independence, retiring early, or you really want to be a digital nomad, that's you know maybe a little bit outside of the traditional life plan, however you want to define that. So I think there's there's a lot of overlap. So that was kind of the genesis of coming up with with the podcast and kind of featuring you know stories from from both of those uh, communities. So yeah, good mix of of travel content, have some financial independent uh, content, and yeah, some habits and productivity stuff in there as well. Nomadonfire.com, the Nomad on Fire podcast, and then Nomad on Fire on all the social media platforms. I'm probably most active on Instagram. So if you're on there, just leave a comment, shoot me a DM. Well, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a really fun episode, like hearing your story. It's definitely a little different. You know, you had the traditional path, then you kind of went to this blended model, traveled to a lot of awesome places. And as a fellow Austinite, I hope I see you around now that I got the vaccine. So we'll have to grab a happy hour sometime. But thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. This was a blast. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thebuyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.